All right, here we go. Episode 203 of Living Off the Land. What's up, everybody? I'm Dan here with Steven. Hashtag Twitterless Steve uh, for episode 203. Thanks for uh, joining in and uh, listening. Steven, how we doing? This is an action-packed night. It's Tuesday night, and you know what that means. Packed! I got to tell you, we're just going to jump right into it because we got a lot to cover today. Let's do it. So, I did not forget a beer this week. Uh, I got a uh, staple of mine. We've done it on the podcast before, but it's been a while. So I kind of wanted to get it and uh, do a little refresh here. It is New Cleveland Palesner from Platform. Crisp, easy, refreshing. Now, this is uh, <clears throat> this is one of my favorite beers, uh, just in general, in Cleveland. It's, just, it, it's a crisp, no-nonsense, uh, easy-drinking beer. Uh, great to drink at a ball game. Uh, great to drink when you're grilling. I'm trying to to get us into those summer vibes of you know grilling and baseball and you know hanging out outside and uh, spring just started all a couple stuff. days ago and it has felt yeah very spring like yeah, in recent weeks. It I has, but it's like you know one day it's 45, the next day it's 60, then it's 25 and snowing, then it's you know, that sort of stuff. We're so, all over the place, that's for sure. Trying to get the 60s and above going. So, um, yeah, not much to really talk about or explain about uh, New Cleveland. Uh, it is a platform staple. And uh, if you haven't been out to Platform's uh, uh, tap room, I suggest you go. It has one of the best patios in the summer. Uh, I love uh, Platform in the summertime. And uh, like I said, this is just a no-nonsense beer. And uh, it's one that I really like. Uh, and you know, originally when I first tried this, it kind of scared me away because I saw it was, it, it's technically, it's called a Pilsner. Now I'm not, I'm not really that big of a fan of pale ales. Did you say Pilsner or Pilsner? Pilsner, like mm. pale. It's a, it's a pale ale and a Pilsner combined basically. Mm. I'm not really a fan of, uh, pale ales, but this is really, really, really good. Um, so, uh, I'm going to go ahead and rate it as a 7.8, I almost said Richter scale, on the beer scale. And it is one that I would certainly get again. I would uh, get it on draft anywhere that has it. And uh, I definitely will get it again. So, uh, the price point of this, uh, which is another good thing, it's one of it's one of the uh, cheaper six packs of craft beer that you'll find. Uh, I've got this at, for eight ninety nine at Max Beverage on Ridge Road in Parma. Shout out Max, and uh, yeah, so that'll pretty much do it for beer of the week. Not not too much, not too much, uh, not too much meat on the bone on this one. This is just straightforward. This is just a really good beer. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and enjoy it as we uh, go through this episode. If you get a chance to get out to the brewery and the brew pub uh, platform, of course, it's located at West 41st Street and Lorraine Avenue in Cleveland, uh, right on the border between Ohio City and Detroit Shoreway. Um, excellent time if you've never been out there. Love platform. Shout out. So, 
Next up, we have our Better Know a Neighborhood segment. Yeah. And Where are we going? And we've, we've had six neighborhoods of Cleveland and uh, one suburb up to this point. And uh, tonight, we're going with a bit of a March Madness theme because um, this is this is a neighborhood that I just – I never know quite what to make of it whenever I go there. Okay. Uh, you know, th- so in general, you usually – in most neighborhoods, it's either it's good or it's bad. You either have a lot of good residential neighborhoods and a lot of commercial activity or mm-hmm. you have, like, rundown areas and crime. Mm-hmm. Well, this neighborhood might be the one in Cleveland that has all of that all mm-hmm. rolled into one. Interesting. I am talking about Buckeye Shaker. All right. This neighborhood is on the direct east side of Cleveland. It borders, in fact, it's on the eastern border with Shaker Heights, as the name suggests. Um, it's geographically, it's about a rectangle on the on the west side of it. It's bordered by East One Sixteenth Street. On the south end, it's bordered by Imperial Avenue, and then the east border is actually sort of not really follow with any road. It's kind of in between East 140th and Van Aken Boulevard, uh, kind of right in that zone. Mm. As far as the com- the main commercial, the main heart of the neighborhood is on the northeast end of it, and it's the very well-known block known as Shaker Square. This particular block is one that is actually about to get a major facelift within the next year. Uh, a bunch of money has been earmarked for a redevelopment of Shaker Square, which actually is just starting to get underway now. They've actually uh, corned off the northwestern portion of the square. But when you get it right or into there, right in the center, this is where the the green line, blue line, uh, which are merged at this point, uh, pretty much run right along Shaker Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And just a little bit to the to the east of there in Shaker Heights, they split off. The The blue line heads south towards Warrensville, and the green line heads out directly toward Beechwood. Uh, so you have really good uh, not not only um, road access but also train access right to this area. Uh, so if you've never been there, it's super easy to get there. Uh, I want to point out a couple of areas right in Shaker Square. Uh, one is... One is actually the Dave's Supermarket on the southwest corner. I think that Dave's is actually a really underrated uh, supermarket chain. They they pro- okay. what they what they provide is actually you know, you're not going to find like the top end brands which you might find in a Fresh Time or a Heinen's, but what they do is you pretty much whatever you can find in a typical grocery store like a Giant Eagle, you'll find in Dave's and you'll find it at better prices. You know they do a great they mostly. They have a few locations out in the suburbs, but mostly inner suburbs like Garfield Heights and Richmond Heights. Uh, most of their locations are within the city of Cleveland. So some, There's it, some on the west side, too. Yeah. I'm, there's one in Ohio City. Yes, there's one in Ohio City. Uh, there's one in there's Old Brooklyn. Old Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah. So, And then, of course, there's this location as well. Um, yeah, so shout out Dave's Supermarket. They, they, If you are in Cleveland area and you have not been to a Dave's, I, I entice you to check it out. Um couple of actually pretty cool restaurants on the east side of the square. One that I want to point out is Zanzibar Soul Fusion. This is a um, African-inspired um, soul food type of a place. And I'm having a really hard time bringing it up for some reason. Um, yeah, my thing just completely just shot down on me here. Um, Captain Tony's Pizza is another place that's right on the which is on the southeast end of the square. And then in between there, you have the Cleveland Breakfast Club, which is which is another... Uh, that That's kind of a breakfast brunchy type of place. And 
I swear I'm just not getting anything up here. So this this place is four-star rated on Google. It actually used to be – it's a little bit converted. The Cleveland Breakfast Club actually used to be a yours truly. And if you've ever been familiar with that chain, that's that's a, a traditional American comfort food type of chain. So this, this sort of combines that with um, – if you look at their menu, just um, a lot of traditional breakfast items and a little bit of soul influence as well, uh, which is sort of emblematic of the neighborhood in which it comes through. Uh, that's a 13228 Shaker Boulevard. And if I can get Zanzibar back up here, I can tell you exactly all about that. Yes, so Zanzibar Soul Fusion is at 13225 Shaker Boulevard and is also very highly rated, 4.2 star rated on Google. And here is once so some of the the product product offerings here include uh, Cajun corn, house potatoes. Uh, you got soul rolls, which are basically um, traditional dinner rolls, but they're almost biscuit style, like you might uh, like you might see at a Popeyes or in uh, or a Cracker Barrel. Um, it's a little bit divisive in the reviews, actually. You see this in a lot of places. You get some five stars, and then there are some people that just for whatever reason you just they, they're just uh, having a bad day and they just give you a one star rating so um you know so there i've actually never been to this place um it has the same name as the bar oddly enough that's in downtown which is kind of interesting as you get further south in this neighborhood it becomes more an exercise in chain restaurants if you're going along wood uh woodland avenue and woodhill road if, as you get further east in this neighborhood, you start to pick up more of the um, the Jewish influence. Uh, this is a very eastern edge of this neighborhood and into Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights is really the major um, hotbed for your Jewish community in Cleveland. There are more synagogues in that little two or three square mile area than in pretty much any part of Ohio and right up there with pretty much any part of of the Eastern United States. Fun fact, I actually um, got my biggest tip ever in a lift car, uh, taking taking a uh, family from university hospitals one night uh, back to Cleveland Heights. Um, I don't even know where I'm going with that, but that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, really. It that's was, why you picked it. I mean, really, it was, it was just, I mean, really, it was just an out of the blue type of thing. And, you know, they, they ended up giving me 50 bucks. Like it was, it was nice, just, yeah. I mean, cash, was, yeah. Straight cash, it's, homie. It's, well, okay. So on on the Jewish Sabbath, which is you know Friday night through Saturday night, uh, there's certain things they can't do, and I guess it it depends on how traditional they are. But um, I guess one of the things they can't do is use any electronic devices. So even getting into a car is something that they wouldn't normally do. But because of these people had a medical emergency, they they did that. But what they did was they had me open the doors. They had me basically, you know, escort them out of the facility into the facility, and I guess it was because of all that that they gave me such a large tip. But uh, um, that's just, you know, that that was actually an eye-opening experience, and that uh, the route I took pretty much paralleled this neighborhood along the eastern edge. So in, in conclusion here, uh, the southern end of this neighborhood in particular, in terms of residential zone, not exactly highly desirable, but I do think that with this reconstruction of Shaker Square, 
really kind of um, giving us a better, you know, a better heart, a better hub for this neighborhood, and then also kind of extending down the Van Aken corridor. I think there's there's definitely some potential there, and I think once you really lock down that corridor, you might be able to see some private investments starting to come in along Woodland, and then some of the and along Shaker going toward the west, sort of similar to what you what you saw in or, or what we have seen in Detroit Shoreway, which we talked about last week, with Gordon Square basically being the the hub of that neighborhood. If Shaker Square can kind of use that um, that model. That, that Gordon Square did back in Detroit Shoreway, I, I think that's a recipe for success. But there is there is a long way for this neighborhood to go to really be one of the more desirable areas of, of the city. And that is neighborhood number seven in Cleveland and number eight overall on Better Know a Neighborhood. All right, and you can put that on the board. Oh, yes. yes. All right. Let us move on, and, uh, you know, last week we spent a good amount of time uh, filling out our brackets. Yes. So let's go ahead and get ourselves an update. Okay. All right. Anyway, let's get into it. Let's just go recap. We've got a bracket challenge going on ESPN. It's the LOTL Bracket Challenge. And we have former LOTL hosts. We have current LOTL hosts. We have brothers of LOTL hosts. And we have a few listeners. And let's just go through the standings right now. All right. First is uh, you heard him a few episodes ago on episode 200 of Living Off the Land. My youngest brother, Mike Ford, is leading the pack right now. He is at 95 point... I don't know what this means, but 95.1%. I think that means... Of all brackets? Of all... uh, I don't know what that means, the percent. Yeah, I think that's the national percentage. Oh, okay. So So, he's doing very well. Yeah, he's tops in our group. Uh, It looks like... I mean, I'm only 30th percentile by comparison. So. It looks like... All right, this is distracting me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it looks as if he got... 12, 10... Yeah, how many did he get right in the first two rounds? Uh, I only got 17, so I'm not doing that great so far. It looks like he got 22. 22 out of 32. Okay. Oh, so, yeah, okay, yeah, we're talking round one, and then obviously round two comes after that. Oh, he got, wait, I don't know what I'm doing here. I, uh, I got 16 right in the first round, which was not very good. I got nine right in the second round, which was marginally better. Yeah, so it looks like he got 24 right out of the out of 32. In the which, first is, round. which is good. In round one, I was I'm tied in uh, first. I wait. Okay, we're going after round one. I'm sorry, I'm a mess. Uh, who is? 
this is this? Let me just go by point values. Oh, is it a listener? Who's Rowdy Racer? I, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> oh, that's that's Ryan. That's former co-host Ryan. So after oh, after really? after the uh, first round, Ryan Ryan actually had the most correct uh, with 250 points. Uh, okay, so you had 25 correct. 25 correct. Then uh, Mike, my brother, Brett Hoyer, my other brother Anthony, uh, my coworker Leland, and former co-host Jordan Gonzalez, all with 24. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Pasarchik, former co-host, 23. Okay. And then I had 22. And then way down at the bottom was you, sir. Actually, before that, your brother Matthew had 19. Yeah. And then you had 17, according to this. Yeah. It was an ugly first round, for sure. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, second round, it looks like me and me and my brother Mike were at the top of the heat with 200 points, so I think that means we got 10. 10. Yep. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Jordan, Jimmy, and you, Steve were tied for second. Nine. With uh, 180 points, so nine nine correct. Yep. And then we had uh, Ryan with 16, so 160, so we had eight right. Mm-hmm. Brett, my brother Anthony, Leland, and Matthew all had seven correct. Mm. So the standings as they sit right now, uh, Mike is at the top. With 440 total points, he has the highest remaining point total possible. Which is very nice. At 1680. Yes. Uh, I am in second at 420. I have the second highest uh, at 1580. Uh, Steven, you are down in ninth, but you actually have the third highest potential point um, max at 1550. And then your brother, who's currently dead last he has 1530 so there's still a lot out out there to play uh the only one that is essentially eliminated is uh leland because he had auburn going all the way oh well he's done yeah clearly if you lose your (laughs) so if you had auburn kentucky or baylor as your national champion you are history at this point yeah i lost baylor in the final four but i had them going out in the semifinals so yeah that that hurt that hurts a little bit but i'm okay yeah. I'm okay. That can still be withstood if, if your two finalists end up hitting, for sure. So what were your thoughts coming out of the uh, first and second round of the tournament? I, just for me personally, uh, lack of buzzer beaters was number one. Mm. There was, like, none, really. And Which is not to say that there weren't a lot of close games. There were. No, there's just there wasn't just, like, that oh-my-God mm. moment, you know? Yeah. The oh-my-God moment is the fact that uh, a college that I had never heard of before in New Jersey, St. Peter's is in the uh, Sweet 16. They are only the second 15 seed to ever reach the Sweet 16 after Florida Gulf Coast in 2011. Uh, St. Peter's, I can't say that was ever a school I'd ever heard of either. Uh, they take out Kentucky in the first round, and then they take out Murray State in the second they... round, which that actually, so far, looking at my bracket personally, was probably the single most damaging result on my bracket so far because I had Murray State going to the Elite Eight, and when Kentucky lost, Whoops. I was like, well, this is great because they're at least getting to the round of 16. 
Wrong. In the words of Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh-uh. Guess if there's one saving grace there, it's the fact that, you know, not many people are going to cash in on that one anyway. And it's, but, yeah. you know, so, amazing, amazing job by, by St. Peter's. And I wonder if Murray State just, like, felt like Kentucky, when they saw Kentucky lose, they were like, well, you know, we're just going to win this second game by showing up. And probably. And you just can't be cocky like that. I mean, this the NCAA tournament, you have one bad game. It's Asa La Vista. St. Peter's, I don't know how they're a Division One school. They they showed their home uh, gym. I'm not even going to call it an arena. It looked like the Strongsville High School. Uh, That's literally what gym. they look like in the Northeast Conference and the oh my God. League and, and some of these you know really small leagues. Oh my god! The Metro Athletic at uh, Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, which is where these guys are from, actually. Like Baldwin Wallace's uh, basketball uh, gym is bigger than theirs. Yeah, I mean, it's and they're Division un- three. It's not unusual for a Division three school to be, you know, on par facility wise with the very lower tier of Division one. That's crazy to me. Because this isn't this isn't football where you only have a hundred and twenty some teams. You know, the Division one basketball you got like three hundred and fifty or something like that. So it, it's much more expansive than than in uh, than football or some of these other sports. That is true. That is true. So we've got the Sweet Sixteen uh, coming up. This uh, starting this Thursday, correct? Yeah, yes, we do. Thursday, so Thursday, Friday is the Sweet Sixteen. Saturday, Sunday is the Elite Eight, and af- on Sunday we will know who is in the Final Four. Indeed, we will. And if you look back, you know, you talking about you know, why I did so bad in the first round and second round, but still have such a high remaining score. Uh, I mentioned Murray State being out from from the Elite Eight. Wisconsin was the other team I had in the Elite Eight that I've lost so far. They ended, up, they ended up losing to Iowa State, which. When has Iowa State ever done anything in the NCAA tournament? Never. That is like that might be other than St. Peter's. That's my biggest shock so far in this tournament: the fact that Iowa State a won a game and then secondly won a second game against Wisconsin in Milwaukee, no less. That's crazy. You know, Sunday was not a good day for the Little Ten. Ohio State lost. Michigan State lost. Illinois lost. Wisconsin lost. What is it? It was an ugly day. What is it with uh, Wisconsin and their football and their basketball programs just being allergic to offense? They scored 49 points against Iowa State. That's been the way they've been forever. They just recruit really big guys, and they they just have a defensive philosophy, really, in both sports. White guys, you can say it. Well, (laughs) corn-fed. Let's just put it that way. There you go. Corn-fed hog mollies. Well, yep. they, they know how to produce offensive linemen, I'll say same, that. Same thing with Iowa. But, uh, yeah. I mean, you're not going to beat anybody scoring 49 points in the in the, in the uh, uh, no. NCAA tournament. Um, and Ohio State played one of those type games in the first round against Loyola Chicago. Yeah, which, they scored 54, you know, and they won. That was also actually one of my bigger surprises, the fact that Loyola didn't win a game. Uh, they the just fighting came sister out, jeans. And they just, you know— um, I mean, they probably bored Sister Jean to death with their offensive play. I mean, my goodness. easy. She's like 104 years old. <laughs> death is not a joke with Sister Jean. Mm. But uh, but yeah, so we'll see what happens. It should be an interesting week of uh, college basketball. I think that you know the first and second round are always the most exciting because usually you get like the upsets, and we had some upsets, but you get the upsets and you get the buzzer beaters. I think the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight is where you see the best basketball in this tournament. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, because there's there's so many great matchups. You know, once you get down to the Final Four, it's just it's two games and then the national championship game. 
you know, if you, if you want to hunker down and sit down and watch great college basketball, this is probably the weekend to do it because there's enough games to sustain you the whole weekend, and it's some of the best matchups. You've got a two-game-long window uh, on all four days, which is a pretty appropriate amount of time to devote to something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, on Thursday and Friday, if one game goes, you know, ends up being a blowout, you can just flip the channel to the other game. You know, on on Saturday and Sunday, you don't have that luxury, but you're hoping that the Elite Eight will, you know, provide will provide good matchups across the board, and they really ought to. They usually do in most years. Of the teams that um, of the teams that I thought were going to go all the way, they all they both looked pretty good on the opening week. Uh, Gonzaga didn't have any issues. Neither did Villanova. Uh, Kansas looked pretty good. UCLA. I mean, Gonzaga. UCLA got a got a scare in the first round from Akron. They they yeah. very nearly went out to the Zips. And uh, credit the Zips. They gave UCLA a heck of a hard time. There's no credit to the Zips. Oh. I was extremely hard on the Zips last week, so I'm trying to throw them a bone. Yeah. Uh, Gonzaga made it through, but Gonzaga didn't make it easy on themselves, especially uh, that second-round matchup. Uh, that was a single-digit game pretty much the whole way through. And then probably the game of the tournament was Arizona TCU. That game went into overtime. Oh, there was some real that controversy That was a wild there. game. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Arizona moves on. I mean, they are trying – Arizona is trying – I know that they've won a national championship in the last 25, 30 years, whatever. But they are trying to break the biggest stigma of any team probably in the tournament. They are historically known as the biggest choke artist in the NCAA tournament. They are pretty bad most years. They're just not a good bet, uh, even no. as a one seed. No, so and they won the national championship in 1997, but I, I you know, it's kind of oh, right on. It's kind of like Virginia. Like Virginia was national champion in 2019, but how many failures did they have before that? I well, mean, the year before they lost. They were one seed. Maryland, lost to Baltimore 16. County. You yeah, know? they essentially lost to a community college. Yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah. So Arizona's trying to reverse that stigma that they've that they've had over the last uh, two decades, but. Uh, did yeah. you did you see the play at the end of the TCU Arizona game? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wh- what did you think of it? W- was it over and back? Was it a foul? Or w- they ended up calling nothing, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, I don't think it was. I. Uh, you want to know why I don't think it was a foul? Is because he egregiously flopped. Mm. Do I think there was contact there? Yes. I think if he just would have like fallen over, they might have called it. Because I feel like the refs would have been like, okay, we got to call something. But the fact that he flailed his arms out and just flopped like a fish into the backfield, I feel like the refs were just like, you know how in uh, in soccer when a guy takes a dive in the box and the ref just goes, get up? Yeah. I think that's essentially what the refs did there. It, it Which to me makes it an over and back. It should have been called an over and back. But they didn't call anything. So I – which ultimately, I don't know that that would have changed the outcome. I mean, it would have given Arizona the ball with like two some seconds left. I mean, they could have had a buzzer beater possibly. I what guess. What did you but think? Like, I I thought actually that he had stepped into the backcourt before, you know, either right at contact or right yeah. or just contact immediately after. So I actually would have called over and over and back. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I was, uh, I was so fixated on the uh, the foul aspect of it that uh, when it happened, I didn't even realize that he that he had stepped in the backcourt. Um, at contact, but yeah, the way he just flailed his arms out, it's like, come on, guy. And yes, I mean, I get it. I get it. Like he was, in, he was in a tough spot because he was right up against the uh, the mid court line, and he was getting 
just, you know, uh, he was getting trapped extremely tough. And he probably felt like he needed to do something. So he just kind of flailed and tried to get a foul call. Yeah. So there are four teams remaining in the tournament. And we'll, maybe we'll move off this topic after this. But there are four teams left in the tournament that have an eight seed or higher. North Carolina, uh, Miami, Iowa State, and Michigan. Ugh. Of any of those teams, do you think any of them can make the Final Four and maybe make a run? all the way to the national championship? Or is that just a bridge too far for all of them? North Carolina. Who do they play? They they just beat Baylor in the previous game. They coughed up a no, huge who, lead in that who game. Who do they play? Uh, so Coming their next up. game is against, is against UCLA. I mean, I feel like, you know, obviously North Carolina, they're one of those blue, blue blood programs. And they just... So, so you know that... You know, they're not a lower seed because they don't have the talent. They're a lower seed because at some point during the season, they underachieved a little bit. They started terribly. So when you get to the tournament and then you knock off the number one, I'm pretty, I think, I could be wrong. Was was Baylor the number one overall seed? No, that was Gonzaga. But okay. You no, could have right. made, right. right. made a case. I mean, but they're the defending national champions and they're a one seed. And North Carolina just took them out. I mean, they had a 27-point lead in that game until they almost blew it, and then they won in overtime. Unbelievable! Yeah, 25-27 point lead. One of their uh, one of their big guns uh, gets a flagrant two and gets ejected for throwing an elbow, which I think was ridiculous to get thrown out of that game. Flagrant one, fine. Flagrant two, that's a little bit ridiculous, but whatever. They end up winning the game, so no harm, no foul. But yeah, it was. I gotta go with North Carolina. What about you? Yeah, definitely. I. I watched Miami play, and I, I saw part of um, Iowa State's game as well against Wisconsin, but I, I just don't see either of those teams. I mean, it, it'd be pretty hard to imagine. Although, if Miami were to pull this, Miami's kind of in the mold of um, North Carolina. They didn't start well. They've played really, really well down the stretch, and you know, Coach Jim Laranega, former PG guy from back in the day, you know, has them playing really well. So if anyone besides UNC is able to do it, I, w- I would – throw my money on Miami as opposed to the other two schools. Okay. By the way, the end of the Miami-Auburn game, the Miami fans were chanting ACC, <laughs> ACC, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Auburn was a fraud. Um, <laughs> they were ranked number one for much of the season. I'm not going to say Michigan because I, I actually think they're they're going to get boat raced by Villanova Yeah, uh, in the Sweet 16. So um, I don't think it's going to be them. But, uh, but, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, I'm going North Carolina out of that out of that bunch. So, well, the fun starts on Thursday night. So, uh, yep, get your popcorn popped and uh, get your favorite beer of the week and your hey little uh, koozie or whatever. So, pales pales near from platform, mm-hmm. New Cleveland. Let's get it. Let's go. All right. So that is your uh, March Madness uh, update, the LOTL bracket challenge, and we are moving and humming right along here. Yes, we are. Let's uh, let's talk about the Cavaliers for a few minutes here. Okay. Um, the King returned this week, uh, uh, yesterday actually. Yesterday. And uh, boy, did he teach our young Cavaliers a lesson. The Lakers stink. They are terrible. Thirty and forty-one coming into that game last night. They've dealt with injuries all year. LeBron's missed some time. Anthony Davis has miss, missed most of the season actually. And uh, 
yeah, LeBron was not coming back into town to lose uh, last night. LeBron had a 38-point, uh, 10-rebound, 12-assist, triple-double last night. And, you know, it almost seemed like the young Cavs team was just, like, in awe of him last night. As Colin Cowherd would say, and I don't really like him, but uh, he would say that this was a circle game for LeBron James yeah. and the Lakers. And they played like it. They played motivated. They played hard. They just, I mean, the Cavaliers d- didn't do themselves any favors. They played no defense whatsoever for None. the game. To give up 131 points to that team without Anthony Davis is laughable. And it's laughable, but it's also incredibly concerning because over the last few weeks, the Cavaliers have not played any defense whatsoever. They really have not. And that's been their calling card, and that's what got them out to a really fast start this season. And they're just not playing any right now. 131 points in regulation against LeBron and a bunch of stiffs. And, yeah, I include Russell Westbrook in that because he, at this point in his career, he's a stiff. The Cavaliers just had that game against the Lakers on Monday night wrapped up a five-game homestand for the Cavs. In that five-game homestand, they did go 3-2, and two, but here are the point totals they gave up in these games. 111, 118, 116, 109, 131. Yeah, not good. That is awful. Not good. Um Yeah, I mean and they're not they're not good enough off- offensively to play to play uh poorly on defense. They're just not right now. Um Interestingly enough, the last time the Cavaliers did not give up over 100 points in the game was the last time they played the Raptors back on March 6th, which the reason I'm bringing that up is because their next game is in Toronto against the Raptors who are the team immediately behind them in the standings and who they need to finish in front of to not end up in the play-in tournament. Biggest, so game, game, biggest game of the season. is freaking massive. Biggest game of the season. Uh, and it will be played in Toronto, correct? Yes. So Cavaliers played have the played them already twice at home. They beat them both times. Yep. So tiebreaker will be on our side regardless, but this would really be huge. If, because yeah. if they're only a game behind in the standings. They, they uh, Raptors actually played last night in Chicago. They got beat by the Bulls. Because what you don't want, um, yeah, the Bulls are in free fall right now. Uh, yeah, they're Lon- not playing very well either. They're just only a couple games ahead of them. Lonzo, Lonzo Ball is has been out for a while, and they just scaled back his rehab, so he, he might be done for the regular season, um, which is a big blow to them. Um, but the reason why holding on to the sixth seed is so important for the Cavaliers is that if they fall into the play-in game and they fall into a 7-8 matchup against the Nets, good night. Presumably Brooklyn. Now... That would not be disqualifying for the Cavs. If they were to lose the 7-8 game, they would still have another shot against whoever wins the 9-10 game, which right now looks to be between Charlotte and Atlanta. But, and this is a this is going to be a great transition to our uh, smart-ass of the week, but it seems like you have a much greater opinion of Brooklyn than I do. Uh, you uh, Am I going to be the smart-ass of the week? No. <laughs> no, it's not going to be you. Well, here's the thing. Um, I just think if uh, if if KD and Kyrie are both healthy, and uh, Kyrie can avoid any uh, vaccine mandates in any of these cities that he's going to be playing in in the playoffs, um, they're going to win the East, in my opinion. Win the East? Seriously? If those two guys are healthy in the playoffs, who's going to beat them? I would say any number of. 
Milwaukee, Philly, Miami. Philly, no, I, not I, a chance. I, I would, I would take any one. Not of those a chance teams. of Philly. Not a chance of Philly. James Harden is a complete fraud, and he's going to disappear in the playoffs. And Hell, Joel, I'd even take Boston over. Brooklyn. Joel, Joel Embiid will not be able to do it in the playoffs by himself. The the Seventy Sixers are complete frauds. That's not going to happen. I, I, I take Brooklyn four one over the Sixers. Okay, that's you know there are actually a bunch of national people who do agree with you on that particular point. James Harden has never come up big in a pressure moment ever. He's been in the league for what twelve years now. He's never come up in a, in a like pressure that. moment. Never. And what? Do, and KD and Kyrie, all they do is come up big in pressure moments. I mean, we know it personally. Kevin Durant hitting dagger threes against us in the finals. Kyrie hitting the hitting arguably the biggest shot in NBA Finals history to win an NBA championship. I mean, those guys are just if they're healthy. Now that's the biggest qualifier. Because over the last couple years, they haven't exactly been healthy all the time. If those two guys are healthy, I, I, I mean, I, maybe I'll give you Milwaukee because of the defending NBA champions and Giannis is a freak. But I don't think there's another team that can beat them in the East in a, in a seven-game series. I really don't. I don't take this because that they're that they're the eight seed. That oh, they're just not very good. Uh, KD's been out. For a while, Kyrie can't play in half of their games. Now we'll see if that changes in the playoffs. Like I said, I'm, this is this is a big qualifier. If those two guys are available, I don't think there's anybody in the East that can beat them in a seven-game series. So you feel more largely that Brooklyn is 38 and 34 just because they just haven't had guys available. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it just recently, they've won six out of their last seven, and the only loss they have is in overtime. So. Their form has gone awkward noticeably. In Kyrie, Kyrie and KD are healthy. To the point where perhaps, let's say the Cavs do beat the Raptors on Thursday night. Could it be that the team we end up having to hold off is not Toronto, but is actually Brooklyn? It could be Brooklyn. Sixth? Yeah. I mean, they're three, right. they're three games down to the yeah. Cavs right now with 10 to play. Yeah. You know, the, that would mean if the Cavs go 500 the rest of the way, Brooklyn... I believe the Cavs have beaten Brooklyn already a couple times. So I'll tell you this: we might have the tiebreaker. They might have to go like nine and one, but maybe they could. Assume that. Let's assume that uh, the Heat hold on to the one seed, and uh, Brooklyn uh, ends up in the play-in tournament and ends up getting the eight seed. Turn out the lights, party's over. The Nets are going to beat the Heat in the first round. Going to. They will. If Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are healthy, they will not lose. We might have to have a wager on that one. We might. I I mean, it would be world's smallest violin for the Heat if that happened because I, I don't have any sympathy yeah, for God, them. God. But, you, know. you should be rooting for that to happen. Friggin' Heat. Yeah. But anyway, if you look at the ca- – to, to close this out, Cavaliers' remaining schedule, again, they got 10 games left. It's, yeah. It is kind of – this is kind of difficult. They got this year Toronto, then the Bulls, then the Magic, then Dallas, then they go to Atlanta, then they go to the Knicks. Their final four games are all pretty tough, other than one. You've got the 76ers home, the Magic are away, Brooklyn is away, and then finishing with the Bucks home. So, really, outside of the game against the Knicks and the two against the Magic, now those are the three games, if you look at the schedule, the Cavs have to have. Mm hmm. You can't afford a loss in any of those games, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The other games, pick three of the seven. 
to win. If you can finish six and four, I think that's going to be good enough to stay out of the play-in tournament, especially if one of those wins is against Toronto. It's forty-seven and if one and of them is against Brooklyn. Yeah, I think that's the target. Forty-seven, thirty-five. I don't think they'll fall into the tournament if they do that, and particularly if they beat Toronto and Brooklyn, then you're they're probably good. But yeah, you know they could probably afford another slip up or two. It elsewhere. starts. What is it? Thursday, Toronto. Yes, that's the biggest game of the year. It's humongous, yes. Because that game puts you up on Toronto two games and essentially puts you up three games three. because you'll have the you'll have tie the hammer tiebreaker. So that is the biggest game of the year. Um, and then, you know, if we win that, then the game against Brooklyn will turn into the biggest game of the year. But you have to have that one against Toronto because you lose that one against Toronto and it gets all sorts of dicey. It really does. So, but I will say, we're starting to break. How how awesome is it that we're breaking down playoff scenarios with the Cavaliers at, 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 in almost the month of April? It's great. It's fantastic. We haven't done it in years. Fantastic. We just got done talking about how the Cavs have been playing crappy on defense, and you know they've been shaky since the All Star break. Blah 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 blah. But let's just run down of of accomplishments that could happen for this basketball team. You could after this season's all done and dusted. No matter what happens in the playoffs, you could very well have the executive of the year. You could have the coach of the year. Uh, you could have the rookie of the year. You could have the most improved player of the year. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, and he probably won't win it, but you could have the sixth man of the year. Rookie of the year, Evan Mobley. I think that's all but sewn up. That's a lock. Uh, obviously, coach of the year, J.B. Vickerstaff. I I don't know if – I mean, that looked more likely a, few mo- a month ago. Yeah. If the Cavs, if the let's see, if the Cavs would finish in the top four seed and and would and win fifty games, you could probably make a case. Yeah, for that. I think in that scenario it'd be pretty hard yeah. to avoid. But um, the coach of Memphis would probably be the the only other yeah. guy I would choose. Most improved player, Darius Garland. I mean, the, the, I think that is he was more g- of a lock than Bickerstaff. He was good last year. He's getting towards superstar status in this in the NBA. He is. I mean, just look at it. Last night we lost. He had 29 points, 12 assists last night. I mean, that's super, those are superstar numbers. That is, completely. Um, so you got him. And then we cannot understate, I'll tell you this right now. I don't have the stats to back this up, but just going on feel and the importance that he's been, especially in a lot of these fourth quarter comebacks that we've had, I think this team has 10 less wins without Kevin Love buying into the six. Uh, the six-man role this year. Oh, some he's of these games, that he has, important. he's just had these streaks where he's just like three, three, three. He's you know, that important. and He's it, been awesome. I mean, he's, if, he's averaging 15.7 rebounds playing 20 minutes coming off the bench. He's the ultimate rhythm guy. Yeah, oh, know? absolutely. I mean, when he gets going, when he gets going, it's, I mean, it's fun to watch. He's just throwing stuff up there and it's just going in. It's almost like if it's a close game and I'm the opposing coach, the minute I see Kevin Love hit yeah. a three, I'm calling a timeout. And it, yeah, <laughs> and it's great. It's great too because, you know, with this role that he has, you know, now that he's getting up in age, he doesn't have to worry about playing a ton of minutes. And when he comes in, he's essentially just like, all right, I'm just coming in to let it fly from three. That's all I'm doing. I'm not going to the post anymore like I did when I was younger. You know, maybe if he gets a matchup, he'll go down in there and try one of his baby hooks, whatever. But he's just coming in, and he's just jacking. That's what he's doing. I mean, he's just jacking threes. And when he gets hot, look out. And he's been great for us. He's been great for us. I- I'm telling you, that's that's probably one of, you know, Darius Garland's probably one. 
And we didn't even touch uh, Jared Allen because he's been out injured over the last couple weeks. But, I mean, what a season that guy's had. He's an all-star. Part of the reason the Cavaliers have been have been down in performance since the all-star break is his, his absence. Yeah. Well, and Darius Garland's absence before that. So we're hoping we're hoping to get uh, Jared Allen back. I, I think they they said beginning part of April. So he'll play the last ham, the last handful of games probably um, before we get into the uh, either the play-in tournament or the actual playoffs. So, but that's your Cavaliers update, and uh, we're moving right along here. Now comes the. Uh, now comes the tough discussion that we need to have. Ah, where are we going um, with this? Actually, do you do you want to reveal your smart ass of the week? Well, okay, before, so I, before I gloss, actually, gloss over that, I'm actually throwing a pivot here. Oh, he's um, pivoting. So originally, I was going to go with Kevin Durant because he's doing this stupid thing about you know hitting jump shots and then like telling NBA players that you're too small to guard me in huh. a game, which I think is just really petty. And I mean. Again, your team is eighth in the East right now. It's not like you're in any great shakes, you know. Now, you took a little bit of wind out of my sails there by saying that you know Brooklyn could possibly win the East, and after you detailed yeah, they it, they don't um, care about that. They don't. It, it's maybe like maybe it's not the most unheard of thing that I would ever heard of. It's like know, what it's like it. what LeBron used to say when when they used to ask him uh, when he was in Cleveland the second time uh, about seeding and stuff like that. LeBron's just like, just get me to the playoffs. Just just get me to the playoffs, and then. Just you know, yeah. I I feel like the the Nets have that same attitude. Just get them in, and uh, they'll take it from there. But yeah, I mean, he, Evan Fournier and um, Royce O'Neal, two players, one for the Jazz, the other for the Knicks. You know, he just does this, you know, almost like the you know so close uh, hand gesture and you know like yapping at him or whatever. It's just I don't know. It's becoming a meme now, and I I, I just think it's all dumb and everything. But hmm. but you know whatever. I mean, it's well known that I. Hates a strong word, but I severely dislike Kevin Durant. I've severely disliked him ever since he left the Thunder for the Warriors and basically cost the Cavaliers a legit shot at the at the championship in 2017 and 2018. Yeah, blah blah blah. That's almost water on the bridge at this point. But I really dislike the guy. Anyway, the better choice actually for the smartass of the week is the Indians ownership group or the Guardians ownership group. Oh, wow, you really pivoted because that's not where I'm going. Oh, it's not. No. Well, it took salary arbitration for the Guardians to even get their collective payroll over $40 million for this season. They're literally playing hardball with players over like one in two and $3 million. Yeah. You know... In sports, we talk a lot about how much players are paid and how high salaries are, and you know the the owners are making so much money and the players are making so much money. And blah, blah blah. Well, no, that's happening at the corner of Carnegie and Ontario, at least not for the players. This is, I believe, the lowest starting payroll that the Guardians have had in any season. Well, it's what, about it's, it's, it since two thousand four or something. It's, I mean, it's, it's roughly this. It's ru- it's going to be roughly the same as it was last year. It's forty nine million dollars is actually where the payroll is. They've now signed uh, uh, today. They signed a bunch of players, and then this evening, right before we were recording, they agreed to a pre arbitration settlement with Shane Bieber. Uh, Shane Bieber will be making six million dollars this year, and he's being horribly underpaid. 
for his contributions. Honestly. Yeah, well, I mean, it's. Uh, that, I mean, I know that's the way it works in baseball. That's the economics of like, baseball. He only has so much service time, so it's not like, it's not like he can like command a uh, a twenty million dollar salary right now. He only has so much uh, right. service time at baseball, it's and that, a, it's, it's weird, part of the reason why that that, that the players were fighting so hard uh, to fix the economics in baseball, and ultimately they weren't successful in a lot of aspects, but. Yeah, so that raised the the the, the Guardians. Sorry, payroll to forty nine million dollars for this year. Honestly, it doesn't even. They're the not o- even, the, the owners not even giving the appearance that they even wanted to contend this year. The owners are the owners of the Guardians are are just they're they're just terrible, and terrible. You have one of the best front offices in baseball. You have arguably a top two to three manager in baseball. You have a great young team, and you won't invest to try and contend. You, they have an open window to contend if they would just spend some freaking money, and they won't do it. They won't do it. They had preliminary trade talks with the with the Toronto Blue Jays about the Blue Jays trading for Jose Ramirez because Jose Ramirez was, in their eyes, making too much money at $12 million $12 a year. $12 million for Jose Ramirez. He's an MVP candidate, and he's making $12 million, and the Guardians are talking about trading him because they know that after next year, when he becomes a free agent, they're not even going to try to re-sign him. Meanwhile, teams within your own division are dropping $25 and $30 million contracts on so that So that prophetic phrase that owner Paul Dolan used the year before they traded Frankie Lindor when he said, quote-unquote, enjoy him, meaning enjoy it while it lasts because we're not keeping him. Yep. You can use that same phrase for Shane Bieber, for Jose Ramirez, for probably Fran Mill Reyes, all these guys, because they're not going to pay him. That's why they're talking about trading the Blue Jays, because the Blue Jays see an opportunity where they can get a guy who's being underpaid, still under control for the next uh, year after this year, and then because it's Toronto and it's a big market that's willing to spend money, they'll probably re-sign him. This is what the Indians have done for the entirety of the Dolan's ownership. Whenever it's they get, whenever they get a really, really good player, they leave. They just walk because the the Guardians will not give them a contract. I mean, they'll try, but they they only try very half-heartedly and don't give them the market rate. And when you do that, players walk. You are a $1.5 billion operation. Now, I get the $1.5 billion is not liquid. You have to actually sell the franchise in order for that to become liquid. But like we were talking in our text chat, the Indians probably cover their their payroll expenses by their local TV contract yearly. Alone. That doesn't include ticket sales, merchandise sales, concession sales, uh, revenue sharing, which Which is the biggest... Piece of Which pie is one hundred and ten million dollars a year. What are they spending that money on? What? I don't think anybody knows. The Dolan family collectively, and now I know that you know it's only a piece of the Dolan family that owns the Guardians, is worth upwards of seven billion dollars. Why do we have a forty-nine million dollar payroll? The Minnesota Twins. I get it. Minneapolis is maybe a, a little bit bigger of a market than Cleveland. Not much. Not much not, bigger. Not, 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 not as much as what I'm about to say. Yeah. The Minnesota Twins can go out and spend $105 million on a three-year contract to Carlos Correa. Meanwhile, the Indians, oh, what, what do they do? They do what they always do. It gets leaked to, to reporters that, oh, 
we're in on Trevor Story. Oh, we're in on this guy. We're in on that guy. We're trying for this guy, blah, 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 blah. And what happens? They never end up getting any of these guys. Never. The largest free agent contract that the Cleveland Indians slash Guardians have ever given out was in 2016 to Edwin Encarnacion for three years, $60 million. That's embarrassing. That is absolutely – we have to be the only franchise in baseball, and I'm going to – I would have to go back and look at this. I will include uh, Oakland, and I will include Tampa Bay. I could be wrong on this, but I have a feeling that we are the only franchise in MLB history to not give out a $100 million contract. Ever. Yeah, I'm trying to think about that. I mean, if it probably is down between the Indians and, and the A's for that. And, and, and the Athletics were the ones who invented Moneyball. So That's like, embarrassing. You know, I'm so sick and tired of the the team and their social media and their uh you know announcers and the pregame show and all this saying well since Tito Francona has taken over uh, the Indians have the first or second best record in the AL over that stretch what has it gotten us nothing it got us to a 3-1 lead in the World Series that we choked away and I've said this more than once before. The whole public perception of the Indians and the Dolans would be completely different if the Indians had finished that series against the hundred percent. It would be totally different. They'd be in, in the same stratosphere as Dan Gilbert with the Cavaliers. A hundred percent. Yeah, period. It, it's pass-fail. I mean, rightly or wrongly, it's pass-fail. And, you know, if Mike Ford was here, he'd probably try to argue with us on this point. But, like— you, you don't win a championship. You are subject to scrutiny, and you know people don't want to. People don't care about your total record over a ten-year period. I'm sorry. You know yeah. they they care about how many World Series did you win, how many Super Bowls did you win, yeah. how many NBA Finals did you win. You know? Yeah. Toronto Raptors. Did they get extremely lucky in 2019 because they didn't have to play the Warriors at full strength like the Cavs had to do four straight times? Yeah, sure. But you know what? They got a trophy sitting at the Air Canada Center, whatever they're calling it now. So, you know. I mean, I'll totally agree with that. If the Indians just would have finished the job in 2016, uh, we wouldn't be getting on them like we are. But the problem is, is 2016-2017, when they went for it, they didn't get the job done. And then ever since... They've just been. It, They've been it, lazy. It's like it, no, it's not. Well, it's it's not lazy. It's this is purposeful. They've been purposely cutting the payroll, like they're chopping down a tree in the redwood forest, which is even worse than being lazy. What you're accusing them of? They're purposely doing it. And don't don't give me the pandemic because every single every single franchise in baseball <laughs> had to go through the pandemic. We're not in the pandemic anymore. Fans were at fans were at stadiums at full capacity last year. Don't tell me it's the pandemic. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. You're just cheap. And ticket sales, again, as we detailed earlier, are only one little slice of the revenue pie anyway. You know, the vast majority of it is is given by a local national TV and yeah. through revenue sharing. Well, anyway, as I get all freaking steamed up about that. Uh, and that wasn't even what we were – I thought that was what we were going to talk about, but it was not. I wasn't even planning on talking about the Guardians at all tonight. Okay, well – um, what were you going to say before I completely hijacked the show? Well, we need to have a conversation about what the Browns did. Okay. Uh, last Friday. And that's a little bit of a darker tone than I was expecting. Okay. 
Well, I mean, if we were just talking about the play on the field, I'd be, you know, doing cartwheels in here, but that's only one piece of the pie. The other piece of the pie sure. is, is very dark and is very serious. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Cleveland Browns traded for Deshaun Watson. And in the process, whether you like him or you hate him, they alienated their current starting quarterback. Uh, and even though they traded for, my opinion, probably fringe, but fringe top five quarterback in the NFL. Uh, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes along with that, given his current legal status and what he's accused of have done. Deshaun Watson is a Cleveland Brown, and that's very complicated for me. And I don't know what your feelings are about it, Steve, but I'll just I'll just kind of go over mine a little bit. I'm very conflicted with this because I am sensitive to and want to be sensitive to the allegations that uh, he's accused of doing. Sexual misconduct, sexual assault. Do I do I think he's guilty? I don't know. I have no idea. He's not going to be charged. Um, and in this country, we're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. But it's really hard to believe that 22 women would just up and lie about the things that they experienced with him. And that's where I come out on it is do I necessarily think that every single woman of the 22 are telling the complete truth? Probably not. Are there a few that, that maybe latched onto this lawsuit because, uh, because of the lawyer and his reputation? Maybe. Do I think Deshaun is guilty of what he's being accused of by at least one or more of these women? That's where I struggle. Because he's not being charged, but in the majority of sexual assault, sexual misconduct cases, it's so hard to prove guilt that just because the grand jury is not pursuing criminal charges against him doesn't mean that I believe he's 100% innocent. Now, does that mean that I'm going to stop rooting for the Browns? Because I think that uh, we have a pretty slimy quarterback now? No. I don't, I don't think I could ever bring myself to not root for the Cleveland Browns. It's just in me. I don't know. And I struggle with that because this is very serious stuff that Deshaun Watson is accused of. Now, there's always the, you know, we're a country of second chances, blah, 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 blah. I just, man, when you're talking about things that are of a sexual nature of essentially forcing yourself on a woman or a woman to a man. In this case, it's a man on a, on uh, several women. It's really tough to come back from that because how could you ever how could you ever trust that 
he's not going to do something like this again. They say that sexual offenders have one of the highest reoffense rates of yeah. any of any branch of crime. Yeah. Um, and I and I and I especially feel a little bit slimy about this because the Browns if they truly did their due diligence and they feel like they feel comfortable enough giving him that contract. This is the first all guaranteed. This is essentially an NBA contract in the NFL. Fully guaranteed, 5 years, 230 million dollars. You don't see this hardly ever with like a contract like in its entirety being guaranteed. It's never happened. At this level, it's never happened. In the NFL. Baseball, basketball, they're all guaranteed. But football. But for a guy with these character flaws, issues, and again, he's not being charged criminally, but that doesn't mean he's 100% innocent. For you to give him that guaranteed contract. Now, again, I don't know if there's offset language in the contract that says if he does something like this again or if like he gets arrested or charged with anything again. That maybe the contract, the contract is, is void. void. I mean, maybe I, there's that line. I, I would, for I, the Browns' sake, I would hope that that's in there. Yeah, because like you just said, that's offen- a two hundred and thirty million dollar investment. Yeah, there offenders be a fail safe in there. Offenders of that nature, more willing to commit more acts similar. But man, I just. You know, obviously the timing was never going to be right to where he was either going to settle or win these civil suits before he was going to get traded and signed a new contract or whatever. I understand that. Like, you, you couldn't wait until that happened. It's just the nature of the NFL. Like, it came out that half of the NFL teams were interested in trading for Deshaun Watson. This isn't a Cleveland Browns problem. Now, ultimately, the Browns are going to get the spotlight on it because they're the actual team that traded for him. Half of the NFL were trying to trade for this guy. So this is not a Cleveland Browns only problem. This is a systemic problem in the NFL where, and I get it, it's a business, it's a competitive, the NFL is probably the most competitive business that there is. You try to win at all costs. And that includes taking a risk on a guy who seems like if the reporting is accurate, and if the majority of these women are telling the truth, which I don't have a reason to believe that they're not, even though I don't necessarily believe that all of them are. See, this is where it gets, it's so incredibly delicate because <sighs> there's just so many ways that this, this, this goes. Like, I, I, I just, I just said, like, you know, you don't want to, cast the first stone but on the other end do we do we really believe that all 22 of these women are telling the 100 percent truth about what happened i don't know i i can't answer that but i will say i if we're just strictly talking football i think today the cleveland browns are super bowl contenders here's the problem with that you can't just look at it on the football side. This guy is going to be the face of the franchise. He's the quarterback. You know, we all want to say Miles Garrett's the best player on the team. He's the face of the franchise. No, the quarterback is the face of your franchise, no matter who it is. 
So it it kind of sucks, you know. The the, the Cle- I think even Miles Garrett would admit that. Yeah, but I mean, it it just sucks because we've languished and you, feelings about Baker Mayfield aside, we've languished and wallowed in the quarterback desert since you and I were in first grade when when Bernie Kosar left the team in 1993. And then we had no team for the next three years. So, exactly. Yeah. And then we haven't had a bona fide franchise quarterback since. Baker, and now Baker was the closest thing we've had closest to Closest thing, 100%. Want us a playoff game, want us a road playoff game in Pittsburgh. I will always thank Baker Mayfield for that. You and I are both Baker supporters. I, I And when Ryan used to do the, pre, the post-game shows with us, the three of us, we were, we were tooting the, the Baker horn. Pause. That sounded weird. But <laughs> – um, we finally get a legitimate franchise quarterback. There's no denying Deshaun Watson is a legitimate franchise quarterback. And this has to be attached to it. It's like, can't we ever just have something nice? We are the kids with no toys under the tree at Christmas. And who knows? Deshaun Watson could fight all these civil and- charges and win all of them and completely clear his name. But... Because of how we are now with social media and everything that goes on, in the court of public opinion, he's a hundred. He's he's guilty as can be. The, you know, you you just used the under the tree at Christmas analogy. This is basically like you were the only kid on the block who managed to actually find a PlayStation Five, but yet there was nothing in the box. No, it no. You could set it up and you can play with it, and it's great and everything. But the controller could like give you oh. an electric shock and electrocute you to death. Like <laughs> like that's that's pretty much like what is what this is. And you mentioned earlier that the NFL is a a win at all cost business. Is it really? Is it win at all cost, or is it or is there a qualifier to where you would say a player is like? questionable or smarmy enough to where if you're a general manager you're like you know what i don't want to touch that even well, though if you think it might possibly hurt you on the field you know what the browns did here was they took the first tract they wanted the talent no matter what they went all in they were pushing everything in they figure we only have so many more years of miles garrett of nick chubb of denzel ward of wyatt teller sure. and all these other players and they said, we're going for it now, and you know what? If we roll snake eyes, well, then we're back to where we were in 2016, 2017. But they're taking their shot. And, I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I can't really fault them for that. If they really feel like this is the move, yeah, you know, especially with quarterback, it's like even we say in the draft all the time, if you think a guy is the guy, you, you get him no matter what. And yeah. they did that here. Uh, and – you know, you'd like to think that this is, a, even though it's our team, this is an isolated incident that that no other team uh, stands by guys that do this. But look at our own division. Every single team in our division has dealt with this. You go back to Ray Lewis and the quote white suit that was never found. Yeah. In the in the 2000 Super Bowl in Atlanta, Ben Roethlisberger. 2006. I think, yeah. The incident in in a in a Georgia bar, and then even the Bengals, Joe Mixon, domestic violence, and in, in when he was in college, 
the Bengals still drafted him in the first or second round. Not to mention all the other players they had in legal trouble long before him. Yeah, Pac-Man Jones, you know, all, you know, this goes on and on. So, I mean, just look at our own division. Now, yeah, does does 22 women accusing him, Deshaun Watson of something, trump all of them? Yeah, him and Ben Roethlisberger are pretty similar. The problem is this happened with Ben Roethlisberger, I think, once or twice. This is 22 women, and we'll see. We'll see what happens, you know. I uh, There was an interesting question post on, po- posed on Twitter, and, and I answered it, and I had this one guy that was coming back at me uh, when we went back and forth on the situation. If you were the Browns and Deshaun Watson, what what would be either one thing or a collection of things that you would do to kind of start the rehabilitation process of his image? Honestly, I don't know that there's a whole lot they can do before the season starts because – well, he can't. I, I, as we've seen, he can't do anything until these civil cases are resolved. Because if he does anything, it's going to be looked at like he's admitting that he did something wrong. Honestly, he should follow his lawyer's advice. He should say nothing. Right. He should stay out of the public eye. Well, he's he's going to have a press conference with the Browns uh, to be inter- introduced, but the Browns are going to not allow any questions of you know that stuff because number one, they're not. No. Number one, he still has ongoing lawsuits, so he's not going to comment on it anyway. So. But I mean, he will he he will have a press probably later this week. He'll probably have a press conference. And in spite of resolution of civil cases, maybe or not, in spite of whether Deshaun says or does the right things between now and September, I'm still convinced that you know the powers that be and and you know feminists and uh, times up and hashtag Me Too they they might stage a protest at First Energy Stadium on opening day. They might be in Berea on the day opening Probably training, training camp. camp. Yeah. I mean, they could they could do these things, and I think that they would happen regardless of – because that die has already been cast. There's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, you just you go back, but, you go back, you go back to like what PETA did, like when Michael Vick. I mean, they were protesting like that's everywhere. right. They were protesting outside Lincoln at Financial first, Field at first. That obviously died down, but but here's yeah. But all things, most things, anyway. They heal with two things. One is time, mm-hmm. and two is you being really good at your job. Successful, right. And so if Deshaun for, Watson— Listen, for now, better— And he could be suspended and and could be out for four or six. I don't know, I don't know how long it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the league is still doing its own investigation, and it's going to come to its own findings, much like they did with Ben Roethlisberger, much like they did with Tom Brady and other f- folks over the years. But when Watson does play his first game, if he ends up throwing three or four touchdown passes and the Browns win, I think that that's going to do more than anything he can do off the field to kind of massage his image in the eyes of the Browns fan base. Yeah, I mean, if if you just go by the example of Ben Roethlisberger, you know, after he dealt he not dealt with that's a weird thing because he was accused of doing something, right. After he did the things that he was accused of doing, whether he did them or not, he went on to win two Super Bowls, and by the time he retired, he was essentially deified in Pittsburgh and is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Deshaun Watson wins a Super Bowl for the Cleveland Browns. It will be that times 10. 
Yeah, because Pittsburgh had a record of being successful and had a record of winning. If the Cleveland Browns win a Super Bowl with Deshaun Watson as quarterback, he's going to get a statue at every corner of that stadium. They uh, will move the Jim Brown statue, or at least one corner. They will move the that guy wins a Super Bowl for the Browns. He, he's going to be he's going to be deified all over the city. Oh, no doubt. He'll be in LeBron James territory and maybe even higher. Yeah. I mean, the only reason why— Maybe I think, not because LeBron is from here, but yeah, like— Yeah, it's the nostalgia of LeBron being from here. But, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I uh, I posed this on the uh, on the, the, the question on social media uh, this afternoon. I think he should take a percentage of his signing bonus. This is just as a start, and this was the first thing that popped into my head. I think—and I don't know what this percentage is. Five, ten percent. He's a $45 million signing bonus. So I don't know if that's 10%. Imagine getting paid $45 million on your first day when you sign a contract. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, sign, you sign on the dotted line, and because, because you know everybody in the world has direct deposit now, as soon as, you sign that, as soon as you sign on that dotted line, Jimmy Haslam just goes click on his cell phone, and $45 million just goes into your bank account. I mean, just logging into your PNC. <laughs> just think no, no, about no, logging no, no. into your no, key I, bank I'll, app or whatever. Good, good save, because there's <laughs> Browns are not allowed to have PNC. <laughs> They were their sponsor for the longest time. Uh, why do you think we sucked? <laughs> anyway. Um, don't remember what I was. Oh, I, I, I think a good first step would be for him to, and again, you're not you're not going to see this unt- until his civil cases are resolved because if he were to do this, it would be very good evidence for the attorneys in the civil cases to be like, oh, why is he donating money if he's not guilty? If he were to take a percentage of his signing bonus and donate it to women's organizations, women's shelters, rape crisis centers, blah, 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 and do that, and just say, look, I'm not, I'm not guilty of any of these. I'm innocent. But I know that the hurt that this story has put on women who have actually suffered this sort of stuff. So I want to help. And the way that I can help right now is to benefit these shelters, these centers, these uh, women's nonprofit organizations to help in this crisis because it is. It's a crisis around this country and in in Cleveland and and all this stuff. So I I think that would go a long way. And even if he's innocent, why is – like some uh, guy that responded to me said, why would he donate money if he's innocent? When has donating money to a nonprofit organization, whether you're innocent or guilty, ever been bad? Yeah, when is that a crime? Why is that bad? And he's like, well, if he's innocent, you're telling him to do it. You should do it. Like, first of all. And it's funny you bring that up because the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, it's been only, what, four days since this news came out? I was going to bring this up. This this came from uh, Ben Albright, who's a reporter in Denver. He's an NFL reporter. He's mainly the Broncos, but for some weird reason, maybe because of the connections he has in Cleveland, he reports on the Browns a lot too. And he's got a pretty decent track record of of stuff. So when this all Browns were going to meet with Deshaun Watson stuff came out, he basically said, you guys have no chance. You're not going to sign him. And he's like to the point where I'll donate $1,000 to the Cleveland uh, Rape Crisis, Rape Crisis Center, Center. Uh, if he does. And uh, <laughs> Sean Watson ends up getting traded to the Browns. So he comes out on, on social media. He's like, well, technically I was not wrong because the Sean Watson originally told the Browns no. And then whatever happened, happened. And he decided to go back and 
go to the Browns. He's like, but, but I will, I will stick to my word. And he donated the thousand dollar, posted the, uh, screenshot of the donation from his phone onto Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that's what got the ball rolling for people because he, he has like 200,000 followers on Twitter. Very big number. So 200,000 people saw that. So donations, you know, 25, 10, 25, 50 bucks. But if thousands of people are doing it, you're going to get a ton of money to that center. Yes. So that's what precipitated that whole thing. I mean, let's not, but again, let's not underestimate the fact that no. there was a certain percentage of the Browns fan base who was not only unhappy about this move, but was outraged by yeah. it. Still and, are. Still some, are. Some that are Listen, are saying that they are going to basically boycott the team this season. Now, I don't know if that's actually going to happen or not, but, uh, you know. I I listened to a— uh, There's a lot of anger out there over this. I listened to a women's sports podcast in Cleveland called That's What B Said, and uh, they talked about a lot of that stuff. And it was, very, it was a very emotional podcast, and I listened to it, and I credit them for— you know, I don't know their personal backstories or whatever, or what they've dealt with in, in their in their lives. But you know, it was it was obvious that it was very hard for them to come to grips with the fact that the Browns were willing to do this. And it was good to hear that perspective because it's very easy, especially as a, as a man, as a male, to just kind of be flippant about it and be like, "Well, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league." As long as he's, you know, not charged. Uh, and he goes out and he wins us football games. Who the hell cares? But the fact of the matter is, is there's a very small percentage of these cases that are actually uh, proven correctly. Talking about sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, because essentially what you're what you're doing is it's he he said she said. So it's right. very hard to convict somebody when it's he said she said. You know what I mean? So it's tough. Um, it's going to be something that's going to linger. Now, obviously, uh, you know, whether I'm ashamed or not ashamed to admit this, if he comes out and start is throwing touchdowns all over the place and ends up winning the Browns a Super Bowl, yeah, I mean, just the fan in me, it, it's going to be hard to not be incredibly excited. But right now, we don't play a football game for – Six months. Darn near six months, yes. So there's going to be a lot of reflection over this. And just just personally, just thinking about it and just talking about it and talking it through. And, you know, we'll gain more clarity once these civil suits start working themselves out. I will say, if he goes on and he wins all these civil suits and it turns out that this was just a giant scheme to try and smear him for whatever reason... I'll feel vindicated in the fact that we traded for him because he didn't do anything wrong. But if he starts settling these cases, even if it's for the for the point of just getting them over with so he can move on with his life, that's going to be hard to take because essentially if when you're settling these cases, you're admitting that there's some sort of guilt in there. Now, whether it's to the extreme that a lot of these women are saying uh, that he did, I don't know. When you start settling these cases, you're admitting like, okay, something happened, but I'm not really willing to admit what, and here's some money, here's a non-disclosure agreement so you can never talk about it again publicly, and we're going to go on with our day. So 
I don't know. He sounds like he wants to fight these cases because he's saying he's innocent. But these cases, you know, with with courts and 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 lawsuits and all that, who knows when how long these are going to drag out? I mean, he's just doing his first depositions on these first couple of civil cases like this week. Yeah, this has been going on for a year. So, and the NFL is not going to issue any sort of judgment or suspension until these civil cases get resolved. So because it turns out because if it turns out that he 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 takes all these civil civil cases to trial and he wins them all, the NFL's not going to suspend him. No, they're not. But if he starts settling like even settling out of court, the NFL's going to suspend him. Yeah. They uh, I mean, cuz they'll they'll see all the evidence that was on the table in those cases and yeah. they'll come to their own conclusion. So, um, it's something that we're going to obviously discuss further as we get closer to the season, as we get closer to training camp. Um, uh, but I thought it was, it was pretty important for, for us to, uh, us to talk about, uh, on this episode. If you want to give any final thoughts, you know, it, I think you just brought up a really good point there that the legal system does move slowly and you brought up the possibility that these civil cases may not be resolved by September, in which case Deshaun Watson could be playing opening day. Because the league almost certainly will not move yeah. to make their own judgment before then. The only the only thing that I could think is they would put him on the commissioner's exempt list because the the cases are all pending. That would probably be a worst case scenario for the Browns. It would be a worst because, case scenario for the Browns then they because they wouldn't have him. They at wouldn't all. have him, and he would get paid. Yeah, he gets suspended. He doesn't get paid that salary. And it's worth noting that the Browns just traded away Case Keenum, so. Oh, they now, did. now you're talking about no Baker Mayfield, no Case Keenum. So they did sign Jacoby Brissett. You know, so Jacoby Brissett is the backup, and he's he's played a good amount of football in this league, and he's won a decent amount of games. Not saying that that's ideal, but if it does come that Deshaun Watson can't play September 12th or whatever day it is, you know he's going to be your starter. And I do think Jacoby Brissett's better than Case Keenum. Regardless of all of this. I did this to end the topic. What do you think this does? Does it change any of the Browns' approach going into the draft, or are they still more or less going with the same plan that they had all along as far as what positions to improve, who to go after? I mean, because now they're they're minus their first-round pick. They're minus yeah. the third-round pick as well. Minus third-round pick, but I think they had two or three third-round picks, so they still have at least one. Okay. Um, well, for me, there's three, there's three areas of need on this football team. Wide receiver. Yes. Defensive line. Mm -hmm. And they need, they need at least another starting caliber safety. They have two starters, but I still don't know if we can, uh, bank on Grant Dilbert staying healthy. He stayed healthy most of last year, but we all remember he missed his rookie year with a, with a torn Achilles. So there's, there's that. And the Browns like to play a lot of three three safeties in their defensive scheme. So I think they need another safety. Now, whether they can still get that in free agency, who knows. But uh, those are the three areas of need. I always thought at the top of the draft they were either going to go receiver or D-line. So they don't have a first-round pick anymore. So second-round pick, I think it still falls in that same line. They can go one of either two ways, defensive line or wide receiver there's still going to be good wide receivers there in the second round 
And now you don't need to draft a top-of-the-line number one receiver because you traded for Amari Cooper. And is Amari Cooper a, that a, helps. Is Amari Cooper a bona fide number one receiver in the league? Probably not at th- this point. But when you have Deshaun Watson at quarterback, you know, he's a kind of guy that's going to make all of those guys better. So maybe, you know, I could see Amari Cooper having a career year this year if Deshaun plays most of the year. Right. That would be the, the kicker on that one. Yeah. So I would say I would say their draft plans haven't changed, but they've had to been adjusted a little bit because like you said, they no longer have a first round pick. Do you think Javion Clowney will be back? I do. Um, he's always been, for whatever reason, very meticulous and measured in his free agencies. He's never been the guy, like like even if you talk about last year, he didn't sign with the Browns right away. He's a guy that likes to take his time and figure things out and make sure he's making the right decision. Do I think he's going to be back? Yes, I do. I also think there's a chance that Jarvis Landry could come back now. That door might possibly be open. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think that's less likely than Clowney, but I mean... I would also agree with that. It's possible. I would also agree with that because I think the Browns just... This is hard to say because I love Jarvis Landry, and I'll always be thankful for him, what he did for the Browns. I think the Browns just traded for a better version of Jarvis Landry and Amari Cooper. I don't know if you want to. I agree with that. I don't know if you want to put two of the same exact style of receivers on the team. Is there any rhyme or rule or reason that says that you can't? No, there's not. But I'm also sick and tired of the Browns not having big receivers. Jarvis Landry's five ten. Mari Cooper's five eleven. You're looking for a guy who's six four or six yes. five. Yes. He's going to be that big, you know, or middle even six of the field two target. six three. And maybe maybe as he continues to develop, Donovan Peoples Jones develops into that. It could be. But I would like a pr- like like even we just um we just signed Jakeem Grant from uh the, the Chicago Bears, who's a three time uh Pro Bowl punt returner, kick returner. But he also plays in the slot. The problem with him is he's five eight. We don't have big receivers on this team. Donovan Peoples Jones is the only one, and he was a sixth round pick, and through his first two years, yeah, it's only his first two years, he's been wildly inconsistent. Yeah, every so often he'll have a game, and then like for the next two now, weeks he won't do much. Is it is it possible that that could be that could be directed at the QB play? Because all of our receivers, especially last year, all of our receivers were inconsistent. Yeah, is that because Baker was playing injured and had the worst season of his career? Quite possibly. Part of it was on Baker, missed throws yeah. and the like, but part of it was also on the receivers. We had a lot of drops. Oh, incredible amount. But uh, but we can get into that as as the offseason goes on. Yeah. Um. So, you I know when it originally happened, you weren't exactly thrilled with the trade. Now that you've had a few days to kind of digest it, what are your final thoughts on 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 the trade? It's not a move I would have made. I would have stood pat with Baker, and I would have looked to improve the team through the draft. I would have actually put the majority of my draft capital, aside from receiver, I would have put the majority of my draft capital on defense mm. and try to win with Baker just being a game manager and the defense being, like, elite. That was that was my thinking. The Browns your, went completely away from that with this move. Yeah. Does your thinking maybe change when you look at the landscape of the AFC and just how many damn good quarterbacks there are in the AFC? Actually, no. 
because really? I really think that if your defense is elite, you can you can neutralize to some degree a great quarterback. And and that I, no matter how many of them there are, Mahomes, Allen, Russell Wilson, who's now in Denver, you know all these guys. You know, I I think that if again as we've seen, oftentimes the team that has the best defense is the one that wins ultimately. I mean, it's it's either that or the team that has the best quarterback play. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think you were going to get the best quarterback play even with Deshaun Watson. I mean, you may disagree with me on that, but. I mean, that was, that best, was best, probably not. But I think that with Deshaun Watson playing at his best, I think you can go up against anybody in the NFL and have a chance. Um, I, as much as I love Baker, I don't know if you can say the same about him at his best against the AFC elite. I mean, you just look at it. Honestly, if you just look at our division and the AFC West, now that we have Deshaun Watson, it, if the if the playoff formula was just the seven best teams, you might have all seven of the teams in the playoffs from those two divisions. If you didn't have to take the division winner of, you, from the South and the East. Yeah, if you just look at quarterback play. I mean, the the Bills would be in that seven, I assume, but none of the other yeah, teams right. from the South and the East would be in right. there. Right, because, I mean, you have the AFC, you might have the best quarterback from a, from a divisional standpoint, you might have the best quarterbacks of any division in NFL history in the AFC West this year. It's very possible. You know, Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, I Russell mean, Wilson, and Derek Carr. Derek Carr is pro- he's he's probably fringe. He's probably at the back the back end of the top ten. But he you can make an argument that he's a top ten quarterback in the NFL. He's far and away the fourth definitely top fifteen at the very least. He's far and away the fourth best quarterback in his division. Yeah, it's true. You can make a case that a guy that won the NFL MVP, and while I don't necessarily think he's that great of a quarterback. He's the greatest athlete I've ever seen in the position. You can make a case that a guy that won the MVP two years ago is the third best quarterback in the AFC North. Behind if you're talking about the right here and now, you're referring to Lamar Jackson of the Ravens. Yeah. Uh, you that you could, just you, as you just could, as quarterbacks he's definitely go, third in terms of actually being a passer. I don't think there's just any doubt as about quarterbacks that. go. I, <sighs> I mean, we've had that debate ad nauseum. You know, yeah. Deshaun Watson, where does he fall? Yeah, you know, what about Joe Burrow? Is he the best in the division, or is Lamar Jackson still the best? You know, yeah. you know, Burrow had a really, really good season. Jackson had one that was injury plagued, and the Ravens fell off at the end of the season. Right. Yeah, you know, that that's a whole debate for the beginning of the season. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see how the AFC North plays out for yeah. sure. Absolutely. Um, boy, yeah, it's crazy. And um, I would be, I, it would be uh, presumptuous to say that the Steelers and our Old local boy Mitchell Trubisky won't have something to say about that either. But uh, mean, I love Mitch. I know you. I know scenario, you love Mitch. In any other scenario besides Pittsburgh or maybe New England, I would say, eh, no big deal. But those teams and those organizations, they always seem to find a way to make it work. Yeah, that's true. Can't count them out. I just don't think Mitchell Trubisky's that good. So, but the Steelers have found a way to win with uh, with broken down Ben Roethlisberger the last two years. So. Who knows? But uh, I know you wanted to talk soccer. We're at an hour and a half on this episode. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so maybe we push that back to next week and we react to 
the World Cup qualifiers that are supposed to happen. Later, I will, later this I will week. just quickly say, as far as because we'll just keep it close to home here, the United States men's national team plays three games in the next nine days, which will det- ultimately determine whether or not they will go to the World Cup. Right now, they are second in the group. They're behind Canada, which, believe it or not, is in first place. Uh, Mexico is right behind the That's USA in third on on gold. Well, if you've been paying attention, Canada, you, you know you know how good Canada is. Canada's in their golden age right Canada, now. Canada was nobody for years until this cycle, and they're more or less in. They got twenty five points. USA twenty one. Mexico also on twenty one, just behind on goal difference. Panama and Costa Rica are the two teams we really have to worry about because the top three go through automatically. Panama has 17 points right now. Costa Rica is 16. And, oh, by the way, the USA, who's their next game against? It's against Mexico at Estadio Azteca Thursday night. Then they have to play at home at Exploria Stadium in Orlando against Panama, who they lost to the first time in Panama City. And then their final game is in San Jose against Costa Rica. Hmm. So basically the three teams you didn't want to face in this window, you got to face all three. Two of them are on the road. And the one home game is against the team that beat you previously. So this is going to be about as action-packed, about as dramatic as of a finish as you can have. And bottom line, my gut tells me if the U.S. wins at least one of these games, they're, mm-hmm. they're going through. Yeah. If they lose all three, they're probably going home. Oh, boy. So, you know, because Panama, you know, one of their other games against Honduras, they're the bottom team in the table. Uh Costa Rica is a game against El Salvador. They're the second bottom. So, like, they're going to be picking up points in some of these other games. Mm-hmm. So, it, it really is – the Panama game is really the huge one to me. The USA beats Panama. Extremely hard to imagine that – I mean, at the very worst, they – maybe Costa Rica wins out. Maybe they finish in fourth place and have to go to a playoff against New Ze- – it's probably going to be against New Zealand, the Oceania champion. But – Bottom line, you get that you get it done in Florida, you're probably good. Even if you lose in Mexico City Thursday and you know, you say, Well, it's just Costa Rica. The USA has never won a game, a competitive fixture in Costa Rica. I don't expect them to do so in this scenario either. So I actually like them as more likely to get a point in Mexico City than in San Jose, believe it or not. They, the first time they played Mexico in Cincinnati, they, they crushed Mexico. It wasn't even – I mean, it was 2-0. Could have been 3 or 4-0, truthfully. But we will see how it plays out. Uh, we will be reacting to the Mexico and Panama games uh, on next week's episode and also taking a look at, well, what else went around in the rest of the world. Just to very quickly run it down here, 14 teams out of 32 have already qualified for this event. In Asia, you have three, Qatar, Iran, and South Korea. In South America, Brazil and Argentina have already qualified. And then in Europe, 10 of their 13 teams have already been uh, decided. Serbia, Croatia, Denmark, Germany, Switzerland, Netherlands, Belgium, France, Spain, and England are your auto qualifiers already out of Europe. Notice I did not say Italy in there. Mm-hmm. They're in a or, bit of a— Or Portugal. Yeah, right. And it's funny you mentioned them, too, because they were drawn in the same playoff path over in Europe. It could be Italy versus Portugal to see one one off playoff, and whoever loses that's going to be out. Mm-hmm. So Italy's in just as ten- – actually, they're probably in a more tenuous situation than the U.S. is in. So yep. it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. They play North Macedonia on Thursday. 
I mean, they should win that, no problem. Uh, yep. And then they move on to play the winner of either Turkey or Portugal. It's just so freaking like it's so freaking annoying and stupid. Italy has not, Italy has not lost a game in qualifying. They're the European champions too, and yet they're in this damn playoff. Right. Well, th- them being in the playoff is because they finished in second in the group behind Switzerland, which you know, okay, fine. But why are they like, of all the teams in the playoffs, in the, if you go by the FIFA rankings, Portugal and Italy are the top two. Why are they being drawn to the same bracket? That just, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, it's the most corrupt organization in all of <laughs> in all of sports. I mean, what do you expect? At least they had the good sense to throw Russia out. Yeah. How, and on. Who takes Russia's spot? Why 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 doesn't Italy take that spot? So Russia was supposed to play Poland and Swi- and Sweden and Czech Republic were also in that bracket. They could have thrown another third-place team from one of the group stages in there. They could have thrown in Hungary. They could have thrown in Norway. They ultimately just decided to give Poland a free pass to the final. You know, whatever. But, I mean... Or how about a second-place group that that hadn't lost a game in qualifying? Do you think Do you think that's a more sure bet for Italy to play Poland than to play Portugal? I, mean, I guess it is. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I know Poland's got Lewandowski, but that's pretty much all they have. Hmm. Portugal has a ton of good players. It's on not paper, just Ronaldo. They have a paper, ton Portugal of good players. Portugal is a better team than Poland. There's, there's no not doubt. Even close. That. All right. Anyway, we're 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 way way long on this episode. So, Sorry, I mentioned Italy. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's going to do it for this episode, episode two hundred three. Appreciate you guys listening. If you guys listened all the way through for an hour and thirty seven minutes, God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Love you guys. Uh, go get some platform beer and. Uh, Hit us up on social media at the LOTL podcast. Let us know what you thought of the episode. And uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, So for Steven, I'm Dan. You've been listening to Living Off the Land, and we will catch you guys next week. See ya. Bye.